Well, today we have the great uh, pleasure of closing this Apostles' Creed series that we have been in uh, for some time now. And uh, when we were planning on starting this, we had no idea that the entirety of it would be happening virtually. It was uh, this idea that we were going to walk through the foundations of the faith, that we were going to get back to kind of uh, ground zero to square one and sort of rebuild what do we believe, why do we believe it, and how does it impact our lives. And so what's been super interesting is that in a season when we are all sort of uh, separately together— Uh, we've actually had to do a lot of personal mining of what is it that I used to believe, what do I really believe, and what does God actually say is true. And so today we close that series, and we do so uh, by looking at the final passage of the Apostles' Creed. That Apostles' Creed kind of ends with the lines uh, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and of the life everlasting. Amen. And so this is this is part of a larger section. So this la- the last two lines, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, amen, this is part of the final closing pericope, which is like this single passage that all goes together. And that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. And if it is one single pericope, one single passage that is to be taken together as a whole unit— then we have to take those words I believe in and apply them to each statement. So I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. And so for ours, I believe in the resurrection of the body and I believe in the everlasting life. And this is interesting because uh, I think what we're going to learn that today is, is about belief. Today is about belief and yearning. Today is about affections and finding a future-focused path to the ultimate freedom that God wants for you and I. So what we're going to do today is start in uh, the book of Colossians. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, and let me just continue uh, to start to read there. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Scripture says, set your heart, set your mind on the things above. Set your heart on Christ, set your mind on the things above, believing that there will be a day with no more tears. There will be a day when Jesus is with us in glory. Set your mind there, rest your heart there. Watch the way it transforms your life to think beyond the place we are today. And so what Christianity What Jesus and then what Paul, what Christianity implores us to do is to avoid the bunkering mentality that can come with um, achieving a certain status or place in life. The idea that I finally made it, I I crossed some line into heaven or eternity and I think I'm saved. And so now I just have to circle the wagons and do my very best to avoid screwing that up for the rest of my life so that one day in the sweet by and by I'll get the reward that Jesus came for. This actually promotes the opposite. The idea that we are to set our hearts on Jesus, to set our minds on the things above, promotes the opposite idea entirely. Let's see if I can make sense of this with you. Around here, um, in, in the great frozen black swamp of northern Ohio, we have, uh, most of us anyway, we kind of have two different people that we inhabit. We have our winter bodies and our summer bodies. We have our winter bodies, which are uh, slightly less uh, tan, slightly less colored, 
maybe slightly larger than our summer bodies. As, as summer shows up, as, as spring happens and we see the sunlight again and we go, oh wait, summer's still coming. It transforms the way we approach the day. See, our, our winter body is sort of covered in layers. Nobody really can see what's going on under the six hoodies, the sweatshirt, and the parka. But the summer body is out by the lake. It's at the beach. It's at the pool. And whether we like to admit it or not, we would rather not look like we're still wearing a hoodie when we're at the pool. You can't really hide the summer body. And so as spring kind of comes out, we see more people out exercising. You see the runners back on the streets. You see people exercising again. The gym memberships start to tick up as people go, oh gosh, I got to get by the pool. I'm still still got my winter body. You know the first time someone shows up in your life, it's your office, your house, you're, you're somewhere, and somebody comes over, or somebody walks in, and they have a tan, and it's like March. And around here, that, they're aliens. You just wonder, either they've been on vacation somewhere else entirely, or they've been laying out because it was 48 degrees and sunny, and so they got a tan, and you're like, whoa. And that's your first indication, summer's coming. And so what do you start thinking? I got to get in the sun. I can't look this way. I'm translucent. As spring gets closer, people work out, they get rid of the extra pounds, they get rid of that natural hoodie that we're wearing. Because why? Because the future informs our present. Because the fact that I'm going to have to take my shirt off at the pool means that maybe I should do some work on whatever's under there before we get there. Now, not everybody lives in the winter body, summer body world. That's okay. But what's true of that, and what we realize when we even think of that kind of concept, is that the yearning for the future informs the present. So it's sort of a silly analogy, but you get the idea. Your belief about tomorrow drives your behavior today. Your belief about tomorrow drives your behavior today. And belief determines behavior while behavior reveals belief. So your belief determines your behavior and your behavior reveals your belief. So yesterday, yesterday was a beautiful Saturday. It turned out to be a day that wasn't as rainy as predicted, and yet the forecast said today was going to rain, and tomorrow's going to rain, and Tuesday's going to rain. It's just going to be rain. And if you're anything like me, you probably mowed early in the week, and you looked at your yard, and you saw that the grass was long enough that it could be mowed, and if I don't mow it and I wait for three days, I'm going to have a jungle. And so every single person on my street was mowing their grass yesterday, probably a day before it was needed. Why? Because the future informed their present behavior. Because what they believed about the future, it is going to rain, informed their behavior in the present. Our, our, our beliefs, they reveal our behavior. And our behavior reveals our beliefs. And so if I didn't believe it was going to rain today, I wouldn't have mowed yesterday. I had other things to do. But I believed it was going to rain. And so the evidence of that is I mowed my yard. Some of you have... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this. We're in sort of a, a thing right now. I don't, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. We're in a global pandemic. I don't know if you'd heard. Minor thing happening around the world. This, this behavior belief equation is, is easily seen when you leave the house. On the edges of belief, there's kind of the, the most people in the middle going, I don't really know what's happening. Coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, maybe I'll wear a mask. Should I wear a mask? Should I go eat? Should I... Do I have to like leave the pizza for 48 hours before we touch it, before we eat it? How does the system, like we're all kind of muddling through. But on the edges of belief, there's two different sorts of, of kind of extreme ideas that reveal the beliefs of certain people. So you go to Kroger and you see the guy who walks into Kroger, no mask, no shirt, licks all the shopping carts when he walks in. That guy, 
He doesn't believe there's anything happening. His behavior is really clear. He's like, government conspiracy. They're all out to get us. I'm licking all the shopping carts. Watch, I'm not getting sick. And you go, okay, well, that reveals your beliefs. Very good. And then next to that person is the person with the self-misting Lysol contraption in the full hazmat suit, not even touching a cart, just picking up one item at a time and walking them out to their car. Therefore, they don't have to touch the cart that was just licked by the other guy. Their belief is that this may be the end of civilization and maybe we should be a little more careful. And so on the two edges and the extremes, you see belief being evidenced. By what? By our behavior. In Christian life, our ability to live well is anchored in our belief about what is to come. Our ability to live well today is anchored in what we believe about tomorrow. And so when we talk about the resurrection of the body, no more winter body, and the everlasting life, What we believe about that anchors who we are today. So let me start with a phrase that I think is going to get a few people's eyes blinking that might get me some emails tomorrow morning. So if you're not paying attention, pay attention. Because I don't want your emails in the morning. I think we're going to agree on this. But but you're going to see this slide. You're going to see what comes up on your screen. And you're going to go, wait, 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 what, what? Everyone inherits eternal life. Everyone inherits eternal life. Albert Muller, in his book on the Apostles' Creed, makes this statement that everyone inherits eternal life. And when I first read it, I kind of did a double take, like, wait, that's not what we tell people. Are you telling me this is that love wins idea that, like, everybody gets to heaven no matter what? No. What we're saying is everyone inherits eternal life. You see, the last line, we're starting with that last line of the creed, I believe in the life everlasting we tend to look at that line, we think about that line, and we think of the positive side of that. I believe in the life everlasting, like heaven. But the reality of this truth, based on Scripture, Scripture is really clear. Everyone will inherit eternal life. That those who have placed their faith in Jesus will enter into eternal rest and joy. Those who did not place their faith in Jesus will enter into eternal hell. Everyone, everyone inherits eternal life. And this is where the yearning shows up for us. This is where our belief starts to matter because if we believe that to be true, then it affects both how we uh, deal with the world around us, but how we behave, even in our hearts. It it, it changes the, the way that we think, that we feel, that we interact with the world. And so yearning shows up here. Here's where belief changes our behavior and where it changes your Monday night and your Tuesday morning and your Thursday afternoon. Because if we believe right things about what is to come, it will change the way we live today. You and I, whether we do or not, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we should be yearning. Yearning for eternity in the presence of God. There should be no greater carrot hanging out in front of us than the idea that you and I get to go and spend eternity in the intimate presence of the creator of the universe. And if we believe that is a possibility, if we believe that to be true as scripture would teach us, then that would enable the believer to live as Jesus prescribed us to live. We could live that Holy Ghost-driven life because we're hopeful for that day to come. We seek holiness today over pleasure because we know that ultimate pleasure is still to come. We seek justice today over consumption because we know that no matter what we consume, it's going to be 
blown out of the water, that the days to come will be transcendent in ways we can't imagine. We can seek life in a world of death because we know that life is ours eternally with the Father. You and I can yearn for intimacy with Jesus now and unimaginably closer in the days to come. And that becomes the key for you and I to endure persecution in this life, to live by faith and not by flesh, to wage war against evil, to persevere in our difficult seasons because we know that there's a greater season to come. This is how you yearn for the treadmill instead of the ice cream. Because you know that there's a season to come where it's worth it. This is where you and I, in in the real life situations we find ourselves in, in our relationships, our marriages, with our children, with our family, with our work, this is how you and I, this is how we make the choice to do what's right and what's beautiful and what is holy over what might be gratifying for the moment. Thomas Chalmers was an early 19th century preacher. He was the leader of the Free Church of Scotland. He preached a sermon at one point that just blew the doors off of society. Blew the doors off of them and and us, actually. If you read it today, it's like it was for us. He blows the doors off the duty-bound, puritanical way that people looked at faith. He did a religious takedown. Because then, just like now, people attempted to live rightly by a sheer force of will. Instead of loving Jesus more every day, we tend to create these complicated ideas where we can uh, be better day to day. We create complicated systems of incentives and strategies. And if I have a sinful habit, I'll just get this sort of sin strategy in place. or I'll get this incentive or this penalty measure in place, and then I can get myself out of it. This is, this is um, a swear jar. That's what a swear jar is. A swear jar is a strategy to behavior modification. I don't like saying these words I shouldn't say. And so every time I say the word, I put a dollar in it. And eventually I'll realize that I would rather have the dollar than say the word. And so I can modify my behavior based on the incentive and penalty structure I've set up around me. If I make the penalty greater than the temptation, then I win and I no longer do the behavior I didn't want to do. That's behavior modification. The reality is Jesus didn't come for behavior modification. He came for heart transformation. And behavior modification starts in heart transformation if it's going to be real at all. Jesus didn't come to accuse us or guilt us or shame us. He didn't come to set up a cosmic swear jar so that every time you and I had a thought we shouldn't or a behavior we shouldn't, we'd feel bad and we'd pay some sort of penalty, therefore hoping our behavior would be more in line. It's not the way it works. Jesus came to set us free from all of that. And so Thomas Chalmers in his, in his sermon, he says this. He says, only when Christ becomes the delight of the human heart, will the old sinful desires begin to lose their grip over us. This new affection, this affection for Christ, this new affection, our captivation with the beauty and glory of Jesus has the power to expel all other loves from our hearts. The sermon Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection that we ultimately chase and do whatever our greatest affection is. And then if my greatest affection is me and my joy and my pleasure and my happiness and my gratification, then I will choose the path that leads to that. And if my greatest affection is Jesus and his way and his beauty and his holiness, then when it comes time to the fork in the road where I choose my gratification or I choose the way of Jesus, if he's my greater affection, I choose him because my heart has been transformed to love him. 
And that's the expulsive power of a new affection. We choose whatever the greatest affection in our life is. And so it isn't about behavior modification. It's about affections and heart transformation. The love of Jesus changes us. The desire to know Jesus and spend eternity in his presence changes us. We no longer have to avoid bad stuff to avoid a penalty. That's called religion. Do enough good stuff, avoid enough bad stuff, and maybe you cross the line. That's religion. Religion motivates with fear. Over and over and over again, religion motivates with fear. Incentives, strategies. Incentives, rewards. It's, all, it's, it's a whole thing. Penalties, incentives, rewards, strategies. That's religion. It's a system. Jesus didn't come for that. Jesus came to take it down. Jesus motivates with love, not fear. Jesus comes to offer life and flourishing and hope, and he does so through relationship with him, through affection with him, through intimacy with him. It's not through any of your own doing. And this is everlasting. So if you yearn for heaven, for eternity with him, watch how, watch how that affection and that desire crowds out all the other desires. Watch how that affection crowds out all the other desires. My wife was dealing with some stomach pain last year, and she was working through different ideas. And is it this? Is it that? Would run this test, do this scan. At the end of it, we, we realized it may be diet-based. There's certain things that just weren't settling well. And what she did was she, she said, I just, I want I want to feel good. I want to feel normal. I want to feel like God designed me to feel. And so she cut this food and this food and this food. And all of a sudden, she felt great again. For the first time in months, she said, I have no pain. This is incredible. She'd established a new hierarchy. And her desire for something sweet, her desire for the ice cream at the Sunday station with the family was overwhelmed by her desire for something greater, for the wholeness that she was designed to feel. And so in the moment when even she was tempted to do something or eat something that would make her feel bad, she knew there was a greater plan for her, a greater flourishing for her, and it made it easy to say no to the thing that she used to love because she had a new affection. She had a new desire. This is what Paul is saying in his letter to the Colossians. He's saying if you set your mind on the things above and allow those things to be the object of your affection and your desire, then watch how the temptations of the world fade away and how love drives you towards the holiness Man, that you have always wished would come easier. I get a lot of questions these days. I don't get them in my office. I get them over Zoom, but I do Zoom counseling. And people go, how do I want that thing? Like, how do I get to the behavior? And it always comes back to, what do you love the most? When When we set our hearts and our minds on something greater than our own desires, usually our behavior follows. The resurrection of the body offers the same hope. Listen, if we don't believe in a final resurrection, a physical resurrection of you and I, if we don't believe in that, then Christian life is simply the old rugged cross. Christian life is all hardship and sacrifice. It is followed by suffering and death, and the enemy of death would still win. And so for you and I, we have to believe in the resurrection of the body that Scripture speaks of. Otherwise, Christianity is just a long, slow slog to death. The reason we have hope, the reason we have joy, the reason we look forward to the day to come is because the resurrection of the body is promised. That all, uh, being human in this bodily existence, this is who we are, this is who God created us to be, and we're not going to simply be disembodied spirits in the days to come, that God is creating a new imperishable self for you and I. We're going to be restored, brand new. 
And that means that we have hope through persecution. It means that we have hope through suffering. It means we have hope through the denial of ourselves and the taking of the cross because the resurrection comes. Jesus takes the cross knowing that the resurrection follows. When he says, take up your cross and follow me, we don't do so with drudgery, thinking this is a life of suffering and hardship. We do so with joy, knowing that what follows the cross is resurrection. There's a reward beyond this temporary stop. And so when we think of sickness and suffering and death, the reality is we can then look ourselves clearly in the mirror and say, this too shall pass. The enemy of death is defeated. And so we press on unafraid, and we actually use the language in Christian circles, we need to die to self. We're no longer afraid of death, because death means there's new life. Here and eternally. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 12. Jesus says this, he says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground and dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried... It sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let go, if you let it go, reckless in your love, you will have it forever, real and eternal. The reality of the resurrection and of life everlasting means that you and I are freed to live with a new zeal for God. Instead of life being drudgery to live so as to die, we recognize that death is not the end. That death is defeated so that new life may come, that, that the seed is buried so that new life may sprout. This truth that Jesus hands to his followers and then by extension to us is that we are allowed to then hold life loosely and give it to others. We could be reckless with our love. Do you, do you consider this phrase, we can be reckless with our love? What does that even mean? Think about a reckless investor. A reckless investor just splashes their money around haphazardly, unsure of the return. They have enough money, they just recklessly invest here, 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 here. Reckless love, reckless investment. Because it isn't about what it will earn, it's simply about the investment. The Christian who believes in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting recognizes that Jesus is the return on investment. It's already earned. It's already done. And therefore, you and I get to be reckless with our love. We get to splash it around haphazardly. Oh, you, I love you. You, I love you. You, I love you. You need help? You need my sacrifice? I can do that. Not because it earns me a place. My place is secured because I have the abundance of love that never runs out, and so I can recklessly splash love and grace all around the world. I don't have to measure which behavior gets me the most credit. I don't have to measure which investment might earn the greatest return so I can get to heaven. Heaven is ours. Eternity is now. And so we are free to invest our lives in loving others and pointing to Jesus all along the way. We're free to yearn for what lies before us. For everlasting life in glory with Christ. It allows that growing of our affections for Jesus. And as those affections grow, then we find ourselves more and more consistently reminded by the incredible wonder of his grace for us. 
And so like Paul says, our challenge is to set our mind and our heart on Jesus and his resurrection, on his fulfilled promise to conquer death, and his future promise to allow us to join in the resurrection. Our future is secured. Life everlasting is secured. It is unfathomably beautiful for you and I who have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus. My prayer for our community as we close this series is that that might leak into our everyday lives. That that belief in who we are and who we are to come, that belief would drive our behavior in new, beautiful, incredible, gracious, sacrificial, and loving ways. May that leak into our present days and free us to give our lives in pursuit of our mission to know Jesus and to make him known, to make it on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reality and the beauty of your truth. Thank you for the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Thank you, Lord, that you are for us. Thank you for sending Jesus to dismantle religion. Father, thank you that it is through relationship and faith and surrender that through Jesus and his earning, we join the reward. God, I pray that you would find our community with our eyes on the things above, with our eyes on future days, that we would not be so caught up in tomorrow's gratification that we would miss today's chance to splash love and grace around us. Lord, challenge us to find our hope and our joy and our security in you. And as we find that, Lord, I pray that you are glorified by what happens in our lives. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.